and welcome to the SLB Podcast, where we talk about ELP, SLA, and other things that enthrall and infuriate us. I'm Neil McMillan, President of the SLB Cooperative. In Episode 7, we'll be talking about the coronavirus crisis. We'll have Miles Kleinert from the Cooperative to chat about his experiences studying and working in Finland. And we'll be hearing from Finnish teacher Alina Patsila and her EdTech project, Positive Learning. This is a long overdue episode, but as you'll appreciate, we at SLB have been very busy trying to face up to the crisis caused by the coronavirus pandemic. As I speak, we're just past the end of the sixth week of lockdown in Spain, or Estado de Alarma, a period in which our cooperative has lost one of its biggest clients and has seen the majority of its in-company classes suspended. This crisis has not only had a big impact on the co-op as a collective, but of course on its individual members too many of whom are freelance workers in Spain. To a certain extent, we've been able to ease the pressure on those workers, first of all by compensating them for SLB classes that were suspended during the first two weeks of the lockdown, by substituting teaching work for other work within the co-op. Secondly, by suspending SLB subscription fees for those who are struggling to pay them. And thirdly, by investing further in platforms for online teaching for our members, as well as training on how to use those platforms. We have offered this training too to the wider teaching community. There will be a link to a recording of a webinar we did recently in the show notes. We've also been working hard to ensure cancellation clauses on contracts are adhered to, and we've endeavoured to keep our freelance members up to date on the economic measures introduced by the Spanish government to help people who have lost income. But as far as freelancers are concerned, these, unfortunately, have not been good enough. Let's put this in context. I personally, and I think the majority of co-op members, fully support the lockdown measures, as do most people in Spain. We have all tried to shift to working from home wherever possible. Many of us are juggling that with homeschooling our kids, and although it's tough, we're not going to complain about any of that because it's obviously stopping the spread of infections and easing the pressure on the health service. Workers in that sector, as well as those in cleaning services and food retail and other frontline services, are having a much tougher time of it than us in that sense. Along with our neighbours, we applaud those people every night at 8pm, and we really mean it. But freelancers in this country are being hung out to dry. Only those who have lost 75% or more of their business are entitled to benefit payments, and those payments are very low. But imagine you've lost 50% or 70% of your business, and you still have to find a way of paying the rent or the mortgage. That's no joke. You still want to stay registered freelance in the hope business will pick up again, but this means continuing to pay the fixed monthly quota for Social Security. We've been complaining about this quota for years. It's a minimum of around €280 you have to pay, no matter how much you've billed for in a particular month. And this is among the highest quotas in Europe for freelancers for Social Security. But it buys you very little security at the end of the day, and the proof is in the pudding that we're all choking on right now. The government announced a six-month moratorium on this payment. Sounded great, but the devil was in the detail. 
For March and April, the months in which so far we've been hit the hardest, we have to keep paying. Then for May, June and July, all we can do is request a delay. Not a suspension, but a delay. They are hell-bent on collecting, no matter what. Yet how can anyone manage this payment without reliable income? The sad result is that many of us will need to sign off being freelance altogether and look for alternative employment, a prospect that is none too appealing either at the moment. We are sure that the SLB co-op has a future. Our strength lies in our support for each other, which so far has remained strong. We meet regularly to put ideas into action to protect our organisation and our members. Our online courses have provided some stability and we feel a bit better prepared than most for the switch to online teaching. But we need to fight to make sure that this switch has not thrust freelance educational workers further into precarity. Teachers need support right now and guidance, not the cynical and patronising position adopted by some so-called gurus who shall not be named. Teaching online is not the same as teaching face-to-face, but online. But in addition to the technical challenges, we need to face up to the potential exploitation of teachers by edtech companies, some of whose disruption of the familiar foes, the private language schools, the publishers and examination boards, is designed to serve the interests of private capital, not teachers and students. So as far as we possibly can, we will continue to work hard to make sure the tools we need to do our jobs are in our own hands. Meanwhile, we appeal to the Spanish government, and to the EU, whose lack of a coordinated response to this crisis has been so disappointing, we appeal to these bodies to throw us long-suffering freelancers a bone. Suspend our quotas until this crisis is over, get us lines of credit that won't cripple us further down the road, and help those of us who have lost even a third of our work to survive. Otherwise, the social consequences could be devastating. Okay, end of the polemic. Let's hear from Miles, who we recorded back in March. Here we go. Like I said before, there are times when there are times when things don't lay the way they're supposed to lay. But regardless, you're supposed to hold your head up high and walk tall. Walk tall. I'd like to welcome a valued member of our cooperative, Miles Kleinout. Hi, Miles. Hi, thanks for having me on as I'm dialing in from Finland today. Great, and you've been in Finland for three years now? Two, three? Oh, it's uh, now two years. Yeah, two years now. Before we get onto what you're doing there, to give us a coronavirus update from Finland. I think the North or Scandinavia seems to have a lot fewer cases at the moment. Is that right? Yeah, I, I guess. 
the latest update in Finland is uh, there have been a few accusations that in Finland the government's being a little bit lax uh, with it. But I think things are now cracking down in the last kind of 24 hours. So um, I understand schools in Catalonia uh, are now going to be put on hold. Is that right? Yeah, they just destroyed my life for the next two weeks. <laughs> At least. Yeah, schools shut from tomorrow. Let's just be clear. We're speaking on the 12th of March. Uh, so yeah, Friday the 13th <laughs> uh, begins. And, uh, Must be the date. Um, will you be looking to teach online in this space? I mean, Twitter's kind of erupting at the moment with mm. edtech companies coming forward to provide solutions uh, to be teaching online, etc. Um, are you going to be yeah. teaching online yourself? Yeah, it looks like it because, well, we have some clients through the cooperative which I think are just going to have to cancel classes in the meantime. For example, the medical, well, the hospitals that we work with. Um, and there are others in companies that are interested in doing online stuff starting from next week. So I think we're quite well prepared. We've got the Zoom account. We've got the online platform for sharing stuff as well. So uh, we'll be doing some emergency training on Zoom tomorrow already. So we're just, you know, I feel like we're, we're okay. We're kind of well set up. But I'm a little concerned because it's the wider economic trouble that's affecting some of our clients as well. So we'll just need to keep our fingers crossed and play it by ear, but we may be in for slightly troubled times ahead. Again, watching the kind of conversation today on, on Twitter, there's a lot of talk about, I think there's two levels of it. There's a lot of talk about uh, how teachers are going to get through this period by teaching online. And I think that's great that teachers are helping each other out there. Yeah. Um, but there's probably less chatter about what's going to be happening in terms of those teachers out there working on zero hour contracts um, right. who are going to be losing work for the next month or more. And, right. uh, and I think that's, that's what the conversation I hope will turn to in the coming weeks. Yeah. And uh, well, for us freelancers, there's an extra worry. Uh, I mean, obviously you will ha have access to social security if anyone does actually get sick, but what's happening with cancelled work is at the moment not quite so clear. So when, as I think as a co-op, we need to look into that, make sure the members are informed and we know our rights and we need to do our best with our own clients to try and keep work going whatever we can. So yeah, I think it's, yeah, we're bracing ourselves a little bit. Fingers crossed. Let's, um, let's see what the next couple of weeks brings. Exactly. Uh, in a way, it's funny because we're doing the TBLT course and we've got um, couple of participants based in China and I think almost they're in a better place I think at the moment I might prefer an authoritarian uh, government <laughs> I think the difference is in China when people are told to stay at home they tend to do it whereas in Italy they try to escape and I think uh, Spain might be similar so yeah. we'll see what happens um, fingers I crossed. do have to mention on that I mean did, did you mm. see the the fantastic case of uh, students kind of taking the initiative to shut down one of the platforms in China Yes, I saw you tweeting about that. That was funny. I thought it was a great story of uh, kind of EdTech putting the learner at the center of the platform and then the learners taking control to get the platform shut down so they don't get any homework. I think we underestimate our students too often. Yeah, I know. They could probably out-hack us all. Uh, uh, yeah, that's the danger of EdTech, right? Well, uh, well, maybe we'll talk a bit about EdTech as we go on. Just to clarify, later we'll be hearing a, an interview that Miles did with Elena Patsila. Is that, am I pronouncing that correctly? That sounds pretty good in Finnish. You're talking to Elena about uh, an educational startup called Positive Learning. 
but that's coming up a bit later. First of all, Miles, tell us what brought you to Finland and what are you doing there at the moment? Uh, yeah, good point. So I moved across to Finland a couple of years back. It was actually an opportunity that my, my wife took, to be honest. <laughs> so um, we were living in Barcelona at the time. I was there with SLB and still a member at the moment working abroad, um, living in sunny Barcelona, uh, plus 30 degrees. And we made the decision to move to Oulu, which is a town slash city in the north of Finland. And we went from kind of plus 30 degrees to negative 30 degrees uh, within the space of a month. Uh, that was fantastic. So we made the decision to come across as my wife was studying in Finland, and I've also been studying here recently as well. But yeah, more and more, it looks like we're going to be staying on. And congratulations, because you've just become a father. Thank you very much. We were, we were chatting about this the other day, uh, that the cooperative, uh, the SLB Co-op has kind of become... Uh, a place where babies are popping out at the moment. Uh, there must be something in the water there. Yeah, it's in the water. It's nothing to do with the fact that we're a sex cult or anything like that. <laughs> no matter what they say. No, so um, don't yeah, believe what you don't believe the hype, SLB yeah. daycare soon, or there'll be something along those lines. I imagine. Yeah, well, I think uh, some of some of the older members will need daycare quite soon if this <laughs> crisis keeps going on. But yeah, you mentioned you're studying, and you're studying. What exactly? Yeah, so I'm actually doing a degree in business administration at the moment. Um, and particularly looking at entrepreneurial education is, is one of the things I'm looking into. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm here on paternity leave at the moment. Uh, so I do have to say a huge thank you to Finland for that. Uh, I'm on paternity leave at the moment. And I will also have some parental leave uh, in short um, around nine months leave I'll be able to take, wow. um, which I think is fantastic in comparison to other countries at the moment. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot better. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm using this time, plenty of time with my lovely daughter, which is amazing. Um, but I'm also trying to write a thesis around that. So that's a, it's been a fun battle. Okay. What's the, what's the title of your thesis or what's the area? Yeah, sure. So I'm actually going to be looking at design sprints um, so how design sprints can be used in higher education uh, to foster entrepreneurial thinking in students. Um, okay, so go on. What's the design topic in sprint? itself that, it, I, that I won't go deeper into now, to be honest. Well, but is this something to do with um, agile approaches? Sprints makes me think of um, Scrum. Is that? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. So like a one week design sprint is something that is used by both designers and tech companies uh, to design products. Um, I'm more interested in looking at this from a point of view where students can use this to solve a problem for either a company or someone else. Um, So how can students create value for someone else by using this and learn through the process? A really simple example is actually one case in Sweden where high school students um, set up a weekly football match with refugee students uh, in order to help them learn Swedish. So this was an initiative that they took um, and then the teachers jumped on that and supported that and they were able to create value for these refugee students. So value creation doesn't have to be just monetary. It can be creating kind of social value as well. So this is kind of the aspect I'm looking at. So is it because we hear more and more about social entrepreneurism or entrepreneurship and that would be an example. I suppose it's kind of task-based learning, isn't it? 
learn how to say referee you're blind (laughs) 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 that was never a penalty etc in swedish it may be i'm i'm at the moment i'm not taking the language approach with this but i mean the idea has crossed my mind uh we're going to be running a design sprint um the project is called sprint in hell uh hell meaning helsinki Uh, so um sprint in hell and this will be bringing students from around the Nordic region together. And there'll be a sample of about 35 students working on a project together. Tell us something about, because you mentioned this fantastic paternity leave, and paternal leave that you're getting. We admire and envy Scandinavia for the kind of social services people have. We know that the public sector is very strong. People pay for it, of course, and they seem, seem happy to pay for it. But in a, in a country where the public education is is so strong and kind of world famous. What's the relationship between public education and ed tech and and, uh, kind of private entrepreneurship in terms of producing educational products? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, look, I guess what I could say on that is what I found is that I'm working, so I am working with, some people do know I'm working with an ed tech startup called Freed, and we'll chat about that later. Right, wait a minute, you pronounce it it Freed, not Free Ed. (laughs) Freed, Um, Freed. and that's really funny because we actually, we actually ran a poll online, you know, to actually say, how do you pronounce this? And uh, Mm. Freed was what most people came back with, and uh, Freed it is. But, um, right. Yeah, so that that enables me to be working in a co-working space here called Maria One, where there are about a thousand entrepreneurs floating around at the moment and a number of edtech companies. Mm-hmm. What I could say would be that a lot of those edtech companies have come out of projects by teachers. So because the teachers here have enough freedom and enough time working in the public sector, they have time to kind of develop their own methods, to develop their own approaches to teaching and their own materials. And a lot of that goes further and involve, kind of evolves into what they can turn into a company as well. So mm-hmm. I do see that route a lot in Finland, um, that the, the public sector allows teachers to have enough time that the projects they develop can even be further supported. Um, on top of that, it's, it is quite comfortable to, to get a business grant um, through different programs here in the government to help you with a startup as well. So I think that's why we are seeing a lot of edtech companies come through from Finland. And does does the public sector benefit from that kind of innovation? Does the public sector kind of buy into the the developments that are taking place in edtech? Yeah, so look, I do believe so. Um, In the interview later that you'll hear, we actually talk about the Citra Fund in Finland. Mm-hmm. And, and this, this Citra fund is actually a, a fund that is supporting, um, among other things, uh, education in Finland. So here you have a private fund which is looking at new initiatives and they often do turn into uh, businesses uh, which do sell back to the public sector. So there's okay. a bit of a cycle happening there. Right. And is the private sector education, is that a big thing in Finland or not? I'm just asking, for example, do, do you have the kind of private language schools system that we have in Spain uh, where kids go to extra curricular English classes or adults, etc. I mean, it strikes me that maybe there's not such a big need for that in Finland. Am I right or, or not? Yeah, look, you are, you are right in, in thinking that. Um, my experience from obviously being based in Barcelona and Helsinki is they are polar opposites on this. So Barcelona, you've got children who are attending private schools, uh, language academies after school to bring their language up to speed. This isn't occurring so much in Finland. 
Um, I've worked with Berlitz uh, here in Helsinki, uh, and that was solely based on teaching in company to adults. Okay. Um, so, no, that private sector of ELT, put simply, the industry does not really exist here. Okay. So, I mean, okay, we don't know if we can go on too much the education first yearly, whatever it is, statistics about who are the best language learners, but Finland usually comes pretty high. I get the impression that that's not, it's not an inaccurate assessment of the levels of, especially English, in Finland. What is it, that, in your experience, that makes the Finns successful language learners? Hmm. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I have to admit, when it comes down to language learning and what makes Finns so successful, I really think it really just comes back down to need. When we're talking about a minority language, we're talking Finland, uh, we're talking less than 7 million speakers of fin Finnish. In that sense, you may have more speakers of Catalan than you do uh, Finnish, in fact. So when you look at it like this, I think there is just a genuine need to speak language to be able to operate in a company. Uh, it's usually required when going for a job, two or three languages is necessary. So what's happening in the schools, I can't speak too much to on in terms of how the language development's happening so well, uh, as the results are showing. But in terms of being a small country with a rather minority language, I think that is simply a driving force. Okay. But are kids exposed to, I mean, I know you touched on this a little bit in your interview, but for example, is, is TV dubbed or do people get exposed to English from a young age or? Yeah, sure. No, I think exposure is a big part of it. Um, TV is not dubbed. Uh, so that's one factor there. Mm. Um, speaking to English teachers who do work with children here, they're often not working with true beginners when they introduce English as a subject at school which I find quite interesting. So uh, children start around the age of nine at the moment that will be changing, but kind of formal instruction for English would be around the age of nine. Therefore, children already have a level that they're coming into the class with. So I think that's an interesting thing that you're not starting with a true beginner in any case. So they've picked it up somehow on the way before they start learning it formally. Definitely. Right. And well, you said you didn't know too much about what happens in the classroom, but I mean, I've heard they use those horrible things we call course books <laughs> and yet they still managed to <laughs> how is it possible <laughs> hey, um, I mean hey course books are here uh, there are course books here in Finland there are subjects here in Finland uh, all of these things still exist um, contrary to popular belief and uh, I actually do talk to Alina a bit uh, later about that so um, yeah we'll have a listen after the break sure right we mentioned the freed platform uh, obviously, I know what more or less what it's about, and SLB have contributed lesson plans to that platform, but maybe you could just talk us through it a little bit. What is Freed, and what's, what are the objectives of, of Freed? If I, if I do go back a bit, I guess I... So I, I moved to Finland a couple of years ago, and um, I have been interested in that space between being a language teacher and looking at what ed tech or education platforms can, can offer. So I was interested in that space, and... I bumped into the team from Freed at a number of different conferences uh, throughout Finland. We got talking and uh, quite simply, I decided that I liked what they did. And it wasn't too long before I uh, started working with them. <laughs> so that's how it, how it begins. So 
at the time I joined Freed, uh, they'd already been running for a couple of years. And essentially what they'd created was an online community for teachers in Finland across all subjects to be sharing lesson, lesson plans, ideas, and finding resources. So um, I saw this happening with Finnish teachers. And quite simply, I pitched that I think this is something that could work in ELT on a global scale, that we have teachers together on a platform where teachers can connect, easily find ideas and share resources. In sense, I wanted to create what would be like a global materials bank. Mm-hmm. And, and we had done this ourselves at the cooperative with a team of, say, 20 teachers on a smaller scale. So I guess, to be honest, I think I did take that idea from the cooperative that if, if 20 teachers were able to come together, share ideas and resources and save ourselves time when preparing for lessons, have a almost database of searchable materials by topic, theme, level that we could really handpick for our students and then adapt for the classroom. Um, I wanted to be able to kind of, yeah, once again, stretch that on a level where all teachers around the world could be doing so. Okay. I think always with these startups, we have the question, when's it going to cost people money or how is it going to kind of fund itself? Because there seems to be always a kind of initial period where everything's, everything's free. What's the, what's the plan with free? Because it has the word free in the name. So <laughs> how is it going to sustain itself, basically? Yeah, definitely. Firstly, uh, freed is always free for teachers. So that is a part of the philosophy of setting this up. Mm-hmm. Um, it is free for teachers and always will be. So monetization is definitely a piece that comes in for every startup. Um, and at the moment in the Finnish community, we're actually working with different publishers. When you go into the platform on Freed, you'll find lesson ideas and lesson plans shared by teachers. And you'll also see ideas shared by publishers. Yeah. So in a sense, we're using that, uh, we're inviting publishers to come in and kind of join that conversation with teachers. Um, as a user, so if I go on there as a teacher, you do have the option to be able to filter, I want to see ideas only from teachers, only from publishers, or I'd like to see all the ideas available there to me for free. Yeah. Um, so you do have that option to kind of turn off the stuff that's coming from publishers if it's not for you. Okay. And so obviously the publishers pay to kind of share stuff, do they? That's where the money would come from. Exactly. What we want to offer publishers is a chance to kind of speak to teachers on a platform that's solely for teachers. If you're already out there advertising on Facebook, etc., um, we're hoping that we can build a community where you can be directly working with teachers. In ELT, I mean, to put in perspective, in the ELT community, um, so far we're cooperating as more of an experiment with Alphabet Publishing and Fluentize. And Alphabet Publishing and Fluentize have a range of materials available on their own website for free. Right. But teachers don't know that it's there. Okay. So we're, we're giving them a platform where they can be sharing that in one space that's searchable for teachers to find. And hey, if teachers are using it, enjoy it, then they may go on and make a further purchase. Great. And how would you characterize the, the growth of the ELT section? Because uh, it seems to me that, I mean, I know we've been involved with it, but I don't have any personal stake. But it does seem to me that you've got a lot of people contributing now. Yeah, no, super happy. So, so far we're coming up to about six months and there's been a 114 lesson ideas shared by teachers mm-hmm. in a blog format. Um, a huge thanks to kind of the guys at the cooperative at SLB. Uh, we contributed about 50 to get the ball rolling there. Yeah. 
Um, there's now uh, 1,000, I've got to double check, uh, where are we at? 1,200 teachers have now registered on Freed, uh, mm-hmm. English teachers in the ELT community. Yeah. Um, and that's continuing to grow steadily. So I'm, I'm really happy to see that. Okay. Yeah. Good. Uh, Miles, tell me a little bit about, now we've been talking about uh, language learning a little bit in Finland, about English language learning. What about you as a, a, an immigrant there learning Finnish? Is that something you've tried to do? I'll be very honest in saying I've had a very poor attempt at learning Finnish at this point. <laughs> so, look, it's quite challenging. Through university, I've done two semesters of basic Finnish at the moment, which is extremely basic. Uh-huh. Um, I was actually shocked with some of those classes, which were very heavily grammar-based and rule-based. So we weren't actually able to speak in the language for around two to three months until right. we had an understanding of the basic spelling and grammar rules which kind of put me back a bit as well okay um, give us yeah can you give us a flavor of the complexity of finnish compared to to english i mean you don't <laughs> speak it <laughs> oh you can if you want but i won't understand you but what are some um, of these no, uh, rules my, my finnish is that terrible that uh, that i i honestly couldn't even give you a decent preview there um, <laughs> have any of these explicit rules stuck that's the have you, have you converted them to <laughs> automatize the no <laughs> So, what, um, for example, no, no, does that, honestly, it, go on. It has cases. It, does it have uh, weird conjugations and what? what definitely happens? some strange conjugations. There's some things that should make it really easy. It's quite phonetic. The way it's written is the way that it's spoken. Okay. Uh, there's no articles. Uh, there's no gender. Uh, there are a lot of these things that should actually make it easier until you discover that there are just a crazy amount of cases which you just need to apply. I don't want to get the number wrong, but it's in excess of 20. Um, so that's when it kind of becomes a grammar nightmare. Okay. Yeah. So, and this is what the approach was, but I mean, we're not saying this is typical, but uh, the approach in the classes that you had was to try to get you to understand the rules first, was it? Rules and spelling you mentioned, yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, I'm not sure if this was because it was a university setting, you've got a larger class size, etc. That may be the reason for such approach. Um, the approach did not sit too well with myself. Uh, and I could say that I haven't retained a lot of those rules explicitly. Right. Because, you know, well, Miles, you're also interested in task-based language teaching, as, as am I and a few others of us in the cooperative. It's sometimes been said that task-based and communicative approaches can't or wouldn't work so well with these very morphologically complex languages. But there's just been a, a book chapter published by our one of our star members, Roger Gilbert, with uh, Joan Castelvi from the University of Barcelona, where they look at doing task-based stuff with Russian. And it's a question of trying to integrate task sequences with the grammar, building it up to a point at which you can kind of complete a full task and trying to get around the issue of kind of explicitly teaching a lot of that grammar beforehand. So, yeah, just plugging that, that's in the, yeah, that's it, the Cambridge Handbook of Language Learning, Task and Syllabus Designed for Morphologically Complex Languages. So there is some research being done, and it'd be interesting to know, is is TBLT a thing in in Finland? Does it have any hold or purchase anywhere? So... TBLT within language instruction, uh, not so much, no. You will hear teachers talking about PBL. So you'll hear a lot about like project-based learning, even right. in language instruction. But the, the idea of TBLT, not so prominent here, no. 
is Finnish available easily to an immigrant? Uh, are there classes, public classes people can take? Yeah, most definitely. So, so when moving to Finland, the one of the best things was that there is a program where you can take Finnish classes for free. Um, in fact, if you're arriving here with refugee status, you can dedicate yourself 40 hours a week to Finnish classes um, in return to receiving like social handouts from the government. So you can actually spend a kind of six month period just honing in on the language to start. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of your studies, etc., is English the kind of language of, is it the vehicular language of the degree you're doing? Or is sure. So the degree yeah. I'm doing, it is. Um, but that's not to say that um, most undergrads, uh, so most bachelor degrees, would you would still find them in Finnish or Swedish. Um, and then at a master's level, it kind of, I'm not actually sure of the numbers, but my perception is it's kind of around that 50-50 got you yeah i mean that's that's it is an interesting point because to point out I, i'm actually studying uh here in helsinki i'm actually here at a swedish speaking university so uh -huh. a lot of people may not realize that that finland does have a swedish um speaking population so there's if i don't get it wrong it's around five percent of the population have swedish as a first language so i'm also doing classes in but once again <laughs> my first semester of swedish classes here and to note the, the approach is quite different so the approach is definitely more task-based in terms of what some people call survival classes right. so it is you know how do i catch the bus yeah um how do i order in a restaurant and so forth mm -hmm. um so the i was interested to see this contrast between my finnish classes and my swedish classes okay let me just ask you we're, we're going to listen to elena talking about in a sense she's talking her projects about character and and resilience etc for young people children i think she's mainly focused on or her company is focused on and this is done via uh, what what they call positive pedagogy now i'm thinking that i could probably have done with that positive pedagogy when i was a because <laughs> i'm a very negative person etc but i did it did make me wonder about and this is getting into horrible stereotyping are, are the Finns as a people are they do they tend towards a negative view of the world or do they do they need this positive approach at a young age i would say yes and, and i would i would definitely say yes there, there is a a wonderful finnish cartoon um that a lot of people uh that a lot of foreigners first encounter when you move here and the name escapes me how good is that finnish nightmares Okay. Finnish nightmares. You can Google Finnish nightmares and it will pop up instantly for you. Uh, the main character is Matti. Um, and it's, it's fantastic. It really kind of shows in a couple of quick sketches uh, how Finns see the world. Uh, and it is quite, it can be a negative outlook at times. Um, so I don't know if there is something there that comes into it uh, with this idea of positive pedagogy. Um, but no, of course, it does go a lot uh, deeper than that. Is it? A sunlight issue is that part of it do you think living in darkness for so, so many hours during the winter I, I think you have to put it down to that no it's um so I, I did the first year in Finland living in the north and I mean we were talking yeah I mean this is uh, sorry I'm born in Sydney Australia spent a long time in mm. Barcelona and then found myself in negative 30 with uh, uh, two hours of sunlight so the Sun would just get off the horizon during winter I mean, hey, that, that was a shock. That, that, was, that was a huge shock. So yeah, hey, why not? That probably has something to do with it jokingly or, or not. But I mean, there was a sense of remoteness living in 
that north in Finland, living that, yeah, living with like little daylight, landing in a new country, I think there was a sense of remoteness. There was a sense of kind of isolation. Mm. Um, And yeah, I think that could play into it. Um, And I've kind of spoken about this as well, this idea of kind of teacher isolation. And I think this was like, for me, it was a a hitting example of kind of this physical isolation, uh, moving to a place that's so cold, so dark, so remote to a new foreign country. And I think that can have an effect on, you know, on teaching, on yourself as a teacher. Right. Did you find yourself becoming a little bit more negative in your outlook because of that? (laughs) Once the darkness, your first winter is kind of a novelty, but then the second winter is tough. And and I think it does take a bit to get used to. But But you get glorious summers, do you? I mean, lots of sunlight or... Yeah, lovely. I mean, uh, lots of sunlight. In fact, you get 24 hours of it, so you can't escape it. Yeah, amazing. So I suppose it balances out in the end. Yeah, I, I think so. Please, no fins. Don't write in to complain about this horrible stereotyping that we're doing. I am just curious. But I mean, if we maybe if we could continue with that idea of of like teacher isolation. Yeah, sorry. Uh, because I, I think we're, we're joking here about like living so remote, etc. But this was actually one of the posts that the, a blog post that I put on Frida a little bit, where I did start thinking about this idea of teacher isolation, and. Um, and I think that's a good example of the physical isolation when you're either living in a remote area or a foreign country and, you know, you're quite dependent on the first people you meet are probably colleagues, fellow mm. English teachers, uh, people who speak English, uh, if you're living in a country where it's not the first language. And I think that can be tough for teachers and the isolation can affect our job satisfaction and the ability for us to perform at our best. So sure. that's one time in my career I think I have felt isolation in those first few months. And it's an issue we're all going to have to deal with. I mean, we're just talking about coronavirus, people maybe having to work from home more. Uh, we're going to be, you know, we seem to be getting increasingly disconnected from our, our colleagues, at least in the physical space. Yeah, what, what do you think? How, how do we combat that kind of isolation, not just from being physically isolated in a small place, but due to the nature of work, the kind of precarity of the situation that, situations that we're in and the need to sort of, for a lot of us to, to be freelance, to be going from place to place, but not necessarily having that much contact with, with colleagues. Obviously, we're going to say the co-op is, is one way of combating that and creating a kind of community. Uh, what other ways would you say teachers can address isolation? I mean, firstly, I think it's going to be interesting what happens with teachers moving more and more online. And if, if, if you haven't had the chance to read Philip Kerr's latest blog posts, uh, if you don't uh, follow his blog, I, I strongly recommend you do as a place to start reading if we put that in the show notes. Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. So there's the one about uh, coronavirus and online teaching and uh, what did he call it? Platform capitalism? Is that the one you mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's a good starting point. But if, if we bring it back to the type of teacher's room, I mean, whether teachers are working remotely or whether we're working within an academy, within the academy, the environment can already not be toxic, but the environment can already be a place where you're not really encouraged to work in cooperation, or you may not have that kind of dynamic teacher's room happening. Mm. So whether we're working remotely or whether we're working in an academy, I think you can still feel a sense of isolation within your job. Sure. And there may be other reasons people are, you know, maybe there are reasons of uh, race or other, or gender or sexuality that might isolate people even within a community. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, obviously there are a lot of issues, a lot of issues there as well. If we're looking to find ways to counteract that, I mean, definitely I would recommend that at your school, uh, 
firstly, you're looking for areas of like continual professional development. So you're looking for areas of CPD. Um, I mean, your school really should be encouraging you to attend local workshops and conferences um, to be exchanging ideas. I mean, this doesn't have to be so formal. They can be more form informal events um, as well, such as using meetup to get teachers together in a cafe to talk teaching. Yeah. I think that's one important piece. Yeah. Um, look, at the cooperative, I guess the cooperative for me has is, is worked as what you could call like a professional learning community. Mm. So, you know, we've, able, we've been able to set up a professional learning community, a PLC, um, where we can all come together. And although we're teaching different learners of different ages and some people doing company classes, some people specialize with teaching young learners, we can all come together and kind of share best practices and learn from each other still. So I think there has to be that piece set up as well. Yeah. And I guess, look, one more would just be what I feel doesn't occur enough within the private language schools at the moment is you go through your CELTA or your initial teacher training and, um, and you're observed and you observe others. And that's probably a biggest, the biggest part of the learning curve. But this kind of drops off um, as you enter the space of an academy, of course, depending where you're working. But I would like to see some type of mentor programs. Um, I, I don't see why it would be so far-fetched for new teachers to come in and to have a mentor within the academy where they you know, could be working together for a six month to one year period. Mm. Um, I would like to see this more kind of traineeship model come in. Um, right. They would be like three steps, I think, that I would like to see happen for teachers to kind of feel less isolated in the profession. And do you have, uh, just to link to your Facebook page that you set up for survivors of the diploma, do you want to mention that and tell me the thinking behind that? That's, that's another way, I think, isn't it, of combating isolation? Yeah, most definitely. So I did, I recently started a, a Facebook group, which is called uh, Candidates and Survivors for Delta and Diptessel. Um, this was actually set up a little bit tongue in cheek as I would call myself a lifelong candidate. That is, I am one of the Delta candidates who have finished module one and two and have been sitting on module three for five years or more. Yeah, I know some people like that. <laughs> <laughs> there are many of us out there. Um, so this was set up a bit tongue in cheek in that as a kind of support network of, hey, we can do it. Um, I'm really happy to say this kind of, uh, I think we almost hit 500 people in the 500 candidates and survivors, those who have f finished the course, who are giving advice to those who are starting the Delta. Um, so it's a really nice community. And that would be an example of just an online PLC uh, that's been set up where teachers can help teachers. Right. PLC, you said that's professional. Yeah, sure. So just a, prof a professional learning community. Right. Or because sometimes people talk about PLN, don't they? Professional or something learning network, right? Because sometimes people on Twitter talk about PLNs. I, I guess my own personal kind of distinction between that would be I would see Twitter as my PLN where I'm connected to teachers all around the world and jump in and out of different topics of conversation. Yeah. Uh, whereas the community is kind of more specific uh, where everyone in there has a common goal, which is you know to pass Delta or to pass on knowledge about okay. Delta and dip Tessel. Sure, that makes sense. Great, okay. Miles, thank you very much for joining us and uh, best of luck with the rest of your studies. When, when would you finish your business uh, degree? Yeah, fingers crossed. I'm working on the thesis at the moment and hope to have that done by end of year. Um, baby sitting, <laughs> babysitting. Oh, actually, it's not babysitting, is it? <laughs> so, um, baby. <laughs> no, you're not babysitting, baby. but it's your baby. No. <laughs> there we go. So, uh, yeah, cool. Um, 
parental duties uh, pending. So let's see if um, I can knock that off by the end of the year. And uh, also working on my module three for Delta as we speak as well. Okay, fantastic. So you'll, you'll change from being a, what was it, a candidate to being a survivor, right? I hope so. <laughs> uh, fantastic. So, and uh, thank you. No problem. Great catching up. And now let's listen to Miles' interview with Alina Batsila from the Positive Learning Project. Off the brightest light, JB's moving in the right direction. Free of injury or evil infection. Stay out the dark and you'll find that you'll be strong. Believe in yourself, but nothing will go wrong. There's room out there for those who want some because everybody's got a little light under the sun. I'm Miles Kleinout and a member of SLB. I'm joined today by Alina Patsila who is an English teacher here in Finland and co-founder of Positive Learning Finland. How are you today, Alina? I'm fine, thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us on a Friday evening. Yeah, <laughs> so we, could, uh, yeah. we found a time to sit down finally. <laughs> well, firstly, do you want to tell us a little bit about your teaching context here in Finland? Yeah, sure. So I'm originally a language teacher. I've been teaching French and English for 10 years in elementary school. And, um, well, I love my job, but then it happened uh, that I ended up training teachers for the education and solution-focused training, and also uh, being a member of a team called Positive in CV, or Positive CV in English. And we now have a startup here at Maria01, uh, course Positive Learning Finland. And that, that's basically what I'm doing at the moment. And we will touch on that later, your work that you're doing with yeah. both the Positive CV and Positive Learning Finland. Um, and for our listeners, uh, we're actually recording this today in Helsinki, based out of Maria01, which is a startup hub with about uh, 1,000 entrepreneurs, I think, now yeah, work, working so, here at the moment, yeah. uh, and many edtech companies as well. Mm -hmm. But if I could, Alina, before I moved to Finland, mm -hmm. um, there were so many kind of great things I heard about Finnish education. Yeah. But could I run three things by you yeah, quickly sure. to yeah. clarify? Yeah. So the first one I heard was that to study teaching in Finland, mm -hmm. you need a higher score on your university entrance exams than to study, say, law or medicine. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, that's something that very often surprises people coming from abroad. And, um, well, you could say that in a way it is true Uh, because only 10% of the applicants enter the University of Helsinki to study to become class teachers. So it is very difficult to get in. Um, uh, so in Finland, we have quite highly motivated and ambitious teachers uh, who have been good students themselves. So I guess you could say uh, that that's true in a way. And also the teachers have like real willingness to help children to learn and to succeed at school and to also develop themselves as teachers through their career. So that's one thing, probably one reason for the international student, uh, the success of Finland in international student comparisons. So yeah, I could, you could in a way say, but well, you know, law school or being a doctor, of course, it's, it's so difficult to get in at that as well. Okay, thanks for clearing that one up. The second one, and this is one I heard um, a lot when I was teaching abroad, 
There are no subjects for children in Finnish schools. Uh, children only work uh, on multidisciplinary projects. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's what I hear a lot too. And uh, I guess you could just um, leave out the word "only" because it's not like the whole system has suddenly changed. But um, well, yes, in the new Finnish national curriculum, uh, there is the statement that schools need to have at least one multidisciplinary unit uh, of study per academic year. But we do still have subjects, and it depends also a lot of the school and the teacher how this is implemented, like locally. Okay, thanks for clearing that yeah. one up. And I've got one more for you. Yes. And this is from me as an English teacher. Okay. Finnish students leave school with one of the highest proficiency levels in English around the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, yet they start learning English at school like later than other children. Mm. So that is, sorry, they they start learning English at a later age than other children in yeah. schools. Uh, is there any truth behind that? Yeah. Um, traditionally. English teaching has started in Finland at the age of nine, uh, but it's it's about to change and it already has changed in some parts of Finland. So the first foreign language will start on the first grade already. Um, English is still by far the most popular first foreign language, but in many schools we offer like Swedish, German, French or Russian as well. And also the the other language that children study, study that starts on the fourth grade is quite often one of these languages. So by the age of 12, they already have three languages because Swedish starts on, on the sixth grade. So that's quite a lot of languages. But So uh, don't believe everything you hear about the Finnish education yeah, system. You be, yeah, you shouldn't be like, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Just check a couple of things before. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like as an English teacher uh, working with young learners here in Finland that you, you do have a fair bit of flexibility with the curriculum. Mm. Um, and I mean, what, what would it, what would your classroom look like? You know, working with young learners here in Finland. Yeah, the new curriculum for language teaching is quite flexible. You, the teachers are quite autonomous in Finland for uh, planning their own teaching, and the methods they choose, they can choose for themselves. Uh, the ones that they prefer to have and th- that suits their personality and also of course the age of the children and when you, when w- you are um, teaching children communication social interaction uh, creativity um, playfulness all that plays quite a big part of uh, the language lesson also the material uh, that we have for language teaching encourages you to be quite creative and to use uh, music, uh, rhymes, communication and so on, and also a digital material in teaching foreign languages. So, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to the kind of transition that you've made from like English teacher in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, you've gone through a space of teacher education. Mm-hmm. And as we said, also co-founder of Positive Learning Finland yep. as well. Um, do you want to tell me about how that journey began? Yeah. Well, uh, our journey started in Espo in Meridori School. Um, I guess it was in 2010 that okay. I started there. And, and this is Espo just outside Helsinki, yes, right? Yeah, that's right. And well, 
I worked in the same school as um, our CEO, Kaisa Vuorinen, who worked there as a special education uh, teacher, and I worked as a language teacher. And Kaisa started to develop this uh, uh, model of strength-based teaching in her in her classroom with her students. And she and Lotta Uusitalo uh, developed the pedagogy further through their research. And I applied the approach in my teaching in the language classroom. And uh, so, um, first of all, I consider myself extremely lucky having had a chance uh, to sort of work with Lotta and Kaiser right from the beginning, uh, which led for me to be, uh, be part of this uh, amazing journey that we are now uh, taking together. And uh, well, after Meritori School, um, we attended a competition with our team called Positive CV, um, which uh, was a challenge competition organized by the Finnish National Innovation Fund. And uh, the challenge was to create innovations that help to recognize strengths and skills in the society when more and more people move around one country uh, to another or move from one country to another. And our idea, Positive CV, was a way to better recognize and document children's and young people's strengths and capacities. And uh, we had, so we had Kaisa and Lotta in our team and also Salamarit Wolanen, who is a researcher of mindfulness. And the four of us um, um, developed the idea together and it was based on, on Kaisa's and Lotta's research that they had done earlier. I uh, started earlier already and so it happened that we won the shared first prize and now we have a great opportunity to develop this idea further and that's uh, where we, we are now. So uh, Positive uh, Learning Finland, in, in Positive Learning Finland we develop the positive method which is again uh, based on this uh, idea that we ha already had in the, comp uh, in the competition. And uh, well, developing uh, new research and also a new methodology with this research based and actually or already um, very commonly acknowledged and valued in Finland and it's called Huoma Hyvä the Good. And for the listeners outside of Finland, you were talking about this um, uh, competition you won uh, through a funding mechanism. Yes. And this was the Citra Fund in Finland. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. yeah. And just once again, for those listeners outside of Finland, so Citra is an interesting fund that was actually a present given to the par uh, given by the Parliament of Finland to the people of Finland yeah. uh, on the country's 50th anniversary. Yeah. And so it's an independent fund. And it's aimed at making Finland a pioneer of sustainability and well-being, yeah. essentially, is two of their missions. So researching the future of work life, education, and uh, achieving a carbon-neutral society as well. Yeah. Uh, so I can see uh, greatly why your initiative uh, yeah. would have kind of sparked their interest yeah. and why you were lucky enough to win that grant. Yeah, yeah. And we are... Um training teachers in Finland and also abroad. So we have, for example, two pilots in Thailand and also in other countries uh, starting in the coming year. Let's talk about the pedagogy, uh, the yeah. pedagogy behind what you're doing, if yeah. we can. Um, so positive pedagogy, mm -hmm. what's it about? Well, positive 
pedagogy or education is based on the science of positive psychology, uh, which is research on what are the pillars of human well-being, basically. Um, it studies such themes as motivation, meaningfulness, positive emotions, resilience and strengths. Um, character strengths uh, are in the focus of our approach of positive education and uh, those uh, we base our pedagogy uh, on the character, uh, character strengths of VIA Institute and VIA stands for values in action. So character strengths are like tools that make values visible through action. And the idea is that those can, apart from us all having signature, uh, signature strengths of our own, they can be taught and learned. Uh, for example, perseverance or kindness or optimism or gratefulness or um, fairness. Those could be mentioned as character strengths, but there are 24 of them initially. And why should teachers implement positive pedagogy in their classroom? Yeah, so it's not only about character strengths, it's also about the whole process of uh, where you focus on. So you see, for example, you see that a student does something well or see good behavior or see behavior that um, that where you can see, for example, perseverance or good self-regulation, then you, when you notice it, that's the first part. And then you give a positive feedback, that's the second part. And then also, um, in our approach, we are going to have those uh, moments documented. So, in order to um, make them seen and appreciated. And um, it's all about interaction as well and having, having positive emotions that, according to research, also um, help people and children and students to uh, open up for learning and open up more for uh, each other as well and build positive uh, atmosphere in the classroom. And there are tools for that and we are also uh, concentrating on making those tools for teachers. We were talking previously uh, about this idea of micro moments yeah. and, and capturing micro moments in class through, yeah. you said, noticing, savoring and appreciating yeah. uh, those, those, those moments. Mm -hmm. Quite simply put, we said it's, you know, catch them being good yeah. and bring that to their attention. Yeah. And I found this interesting as, as a language teacher working primarily with teens and adults mm -hmm. that... We, we almost try to catch them being bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't totally. mean bad in a behavioral sense, but yeah. um, we often, uh, as teachers, our, our ears become attuned to catching errors or slips of the tongues. Yeah. So then we can come in and, and maybe give negative feedback. Yes. Um, and it makes me think, as a teacher, how often am I giving that negative feedback maybe through recasting, maybe just by rephrasing something they've said yeah. so they can spot the difference between their utterance and, and what could be the correct utterance. But it does make me reflect uh, how often do I give positive feedback in the mm. classroom? Yeah. Yeah, and how important that might be. Yeah. yeah. Well, I could, of course, tell you about uh, research done by uh, Barbara Fredrickson. Uh, according to her, we should have at least five positive uh, remarks or encouraging comments per one negative 
in order for the relationship to flourish. And, and uh, these uh, exact numbers have been questioned also, but it gives a, a sort of an idea how much there should be this positive interaction between people. And the core idea there is that with this positive interaction and it doesn't always have to be only words it can also be like thumbs up or or smiling or or like in your gestures or body language uh, and when you give a positive feedback it should also be exact and also felt by the student that this is something real so it, it needs to be genuine um, but when we Uh, do this consciously, we are building uh, an atmosphere of trust, like psychological safety. And when we have this atmosphere of trust, um, it's much easier to look at those um, weaknesses and all, you know, in language teaching, of course we have this, we need to correct our students. But if the atmosphere and the relationship is built on trust, then it's much easier for the students also to look at their weaknesses and, and they are more willing to start correcting them. Yeah, so I know a lot of the teacher education you've been doing around Finland yeah. for the last couple of years has been looking at education more broadly. Mm. Um, but could you give us a, some more concrete examples of how you could use pedagogy, uh, sorry, positive pedagogy uh, in the classroom with language learners? Yeah, well, of course, this catch them being good and see the good is one approach and uh, also concentrating on minor successes and, and on the positive interaction between teacher and student. Uh, then other perspective could be like character strengths and how you could have them as a frame in your teaching in the classroom, whether you are teaching grammar or uh, communicational skills or whatever is uh, your sort of theme of the lesson or the week or the month, uh, you could have uh, character strengths in the background so that you could at the same time um, practice perseverance or creativity with language or bravery to express yourself in the language, like whether it be written language or, or spoken. Um, and the idea of this is that you need to, or you practice the foreign language in order for you to use it in the real world and go outside the classroom. So. Uh, the language always gives you a new identity as well. And with that new identity, you can also uh, have new um, sides to yourself that you recover through this language and the new culture and the way you use the language and meet new people and go to the world with it. And yeah, that's one approach as well. Okay. Um, so you're now continuing the work with Positive Learning Finland. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what will be the next steps, do you think? I know most of the materials were produced in Finnish mm -hmm. up until this point. Mm -hmm. You handed me some fantastic materials in English the other day yeah. uh, that I had a look at. But yeah. what are the next steps for Positive Learning Finland? Yeah. So some of the analog materials like books and cards have already been produced in, in English as well, as you saw. And also the digital material uh, that we are piloting at the moment in Finland and abroad, like in, in Asia at the moment, uh, they are also, um, we're producing them in English as well. And say in a one and a half years time, we will launch the whole material or the whole digital tool uh, or service uh, in the international market as well. So that's 
that's the next step. And now we are developing in a piloting and uh, in Finland with uh, in cooperation with teachers, Finnish teachers, but also foreign teachers that are that are already using uh, the beta version of the material. Uh, so I have in my hand uh, a, a deck of cards. Uh, the deck of cards is actually called See the Good. And these are the See the Good student cards, which are actually produced by um, Positive Learning Finland. And to give you an idea out there, uh, the card I'm holding has the word perseverance on the front of it. Uh, and if I flip over on the back, um, I will find different definitions, uses, and also a scale, so to speak. So for example, if I don't uh, have enough or perseverance, or if I don't use enough perseverance, uh, For example, it tells me that you give up easily when faced with even small obstacles and get frustrated if you don't know immediately how to proceed. On the other end of the scale, too much. Well, you set yourself high goals and don't allow yourself enough rest. So I think these kind of uh, qualities are important for students to understand mm. and, and how to harness. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell me anything more about these cards? Yeah, well, actually, they have been developed just for that just for you know recognizing what do they mean and and also to get vocabulary to see these uh strengths or you could also say character skills um just to underline that they are something that you can develop and you can learn um, and they have been developed to help also the teachers and the students and outside school environment, of course, as well, children and adults, to recognize this um, in themselves and in each others, uh, to keep vocabulary in order to recognize and um, to spot this kind of behavior in others uh, and yourself. And if you think about perseverance, when you have it worded out what it means, and when you think about it, and when you Uh, start noticing in your own behavior, hey, here I am perseverant, you might uh, also want and start to develop that trait in yourself. For example, in language learning, you need perseverance in many occasions in order to study vocabulary or grammar or um, or uh, to obtain new study skills. And that's uh, something that, you know, uh, you can have as a framework uh, in the classroom. And this is something we study today as well as we study, uh, for example, a certain grammar uh, feature. And I think by coincidence, I've drawn the best card for myself in perseverance yeah. uh, in my current mission to master the Finnish language. Oh, right. I mean, language learning is something that takes a lot of perseverance yeah. and something hey, students need to understand. Yeah, yeah. That's true. And also, Finnish is not a very easy language to handle, so... <laughs> I'm getting there, step yeah, by step. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> and finally, do you have any advice for teachers who are thinking about starting their own project or even a startup? Well, one thing that is quite similar, uh, what I've been thinking is that teachers are quite autonomous. They plan most of their work themselves and... Um, Also, what I've been doing by teaching or training teachers and traveling around Finland is being really autonomous, and I've enjoyed that. Uh, and as to our position or what we are doing now, it's very inspiring to build something new and um, 
also doing something according to a sort of a bigger mission and that's very inspiring so uh, I'm looking forward to all that all that we have in front of us as a team and uh, all the cooperation we are going to have with the teachers around the world. I think that's a great way to end. So on that note, thanks so much for joining us here in Helsinki today. Yeah, thanks a lot. Miles, it's been a pleasure. And for the listeners at home, be sure to check out all the links uh, to the items that have been mentioned in this interview below. Uh, also, I'd strongly recommend heading over to positive.fi. That's positive.fi to learn more about the Positive Learning Finland project. That's it for this episode. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope it's not such a long time until we can put another episode together. But in the meantime, if you can subscribe, leave a comment or leave a rating on whatever you get your podcast, that really helps us out. Thanks a lot and stay safe. Cheerio! Cheerio!